What if your orthopedic surgeon suggested you skip the MRI? Or if she suggested that knee scope probably isn't worth pursuing? Or suggested you hold off on that solo surgery for a while? Would you look back at the sign on the door and make sure you're actually in the surgeon's office? Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. This is one of our classic hidden gem episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper, and thanks to the magic of Twitter, I discovered Dr. Howard Lux, a respected orthopedic surgeon who, frankly, didn't sound much like most orthopedic surgeons I'd met during my 30 years as a physical therapist and endurance athlete. The more I read, the more intrigued I became, and the more obvious it was that you'd want to hear from him too. Dr. Lux is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine for almost 25 years. He's an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at New York Medical College and is the chief of sports medicine and arthroscopy at the WMC Health, a branch of Westchester's Medical Center. He's also a trail runner, amateur cyclist, and father to three children. He also, like most of you here, believes in the pursuit of better. Speaking of better, if you're planning to pursue your wellness coach certification before the price goes up next year, your last chance is less than two weeks away. You can check out all the details at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or, as always, reach out to us if you've got any questions, anytime, results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. We'll set up some time to chat, answer all your questions, talk through what the MBHWC means, how that works, what the timelines are, all those kinds of things. Now, let's listen in with Dr. Howard Lux as he provides us with a new perspective on the world of orthopedic surgery on this episode of the Catalyst Health Wellness and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Lex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bradford. It's a pleasure to be here. You're such an interesting read. I, I came across your stuff maybe six, eight months ago, your blogs, your tweets, and you seem to swim against the current. Is that a more recent development or is that something that's taken place over time as an orthopedic surgeon? Funny. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm swimming against the current. I, I, I think I'm just on the on the slower side. I'm not in the center of the stream. I'm out towards the uh, the edge where the current moves uh, at a less rapid pace. Hmm. Um, I I've been writing. You know, if you look at my writings on my website for the last 15 years. Um, I'm sometimes surprised at how long I've had this, I'll call it a surgical conservative or a medical conservative approach to orthopedics and orthopedic surgery. Uh, I just started to notice that people were getting better um, mm. without treating many things surgically. And also some of the principles of what caused shoulder pain, this whole bone spur concept. Mm. Um, you know, I just never bought into it. Luckily, you know, I've been vindicated and all the research shows um, that, in fact, it's not true. And, uh, and the sham surgery studies show, in fact, that, you know, bone spur removal isn't necessary. Yeah. But, you know, I can't remember one specific moment that brought me to this point. I just thought that there was a different way to approach all of this. You know, and FIFA service aside, um, I just felt that doing the right thing um, and helping people get past a certain injury was the right thing to do. Um, as you've noticed, or, or you know, I know that you follow what I 
what I write. Um, oh yeah, my blog has taken you know a very distinct twist, and that tutorial I put up this morning highlights that where we really can't look at these things in isolation, right? I, you know, a meniscus tear in someone with a BMI of forty, uh, you know, an LDL of three hundred, um, and fasting blood sugar of 210 is different than you who's presenting as an ultra runner who can't run anymore. Hmm. Um, And so we have to start to look at the totality of the person before us and figure out really what the most appropriate thing to do is. I love it. It's so refreshing. You know, the old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's just very refreshing. I appreciate it. So as an athletic trainer, physical therapist for 30 years now, your message for me is really unique, very fascinating. Can we just do a free form on some of the hot topics you've addressed? Yeah, of course. All right, let, let's start off with the MRIs. Why does or doesn't an MRI accurately assess the situation? As we're taught in medical school and how 20-something years of doing this has borne out that is actually true, the patient will give you their diagnosis. You just have to learn how to ask the right questions. Mm. Uh, So eight times out of 10, I'm going to know the diagnosis based on your history, the story that you give me. My exam is going to confirm that. And we'll then use an MRI if necessary to confirm our suspicion or diagnosis. If you don't know the cause of pain uh, or don't have a high suspicion then the MRI is often not useful. And that's because no one over the age of 35 and certainly over the age of 45 is going to have an MRI where the impression comes back normal. (laughs) Um, So we know that a lot of um, structures within our joints change as we age. So you and I are both ultra runners. We have a significant chance of having a meniscus tear in our knee, sure. despite the fact that we're running and active. Uh, I was a pitcher growing up. There's a you know, almost a hundred percent chance that I have a labral tear. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a good thirty-five to forty-five percent chance that I have a rotator cuff tear. But you'd never know that seeing me push and pull heavy things in the gym every day. Uh, so. If you push the envelope and get MRIs too soon, you're going to start to find these normal age-appropriate findings, and you're going to identify that or label that as a cause of pain, and you're not actually going to know if it is, in fact, the cause of pain. So, for example, I may have, I may have lost everyone. You, <laughs> you have a rotator you're good. cuff you're tear, good. right? You have a small rotator cuff tear. You just don't know it. And your shoulder starts hurting one day. You go into a doctor's office. Instead of saying, look, let's wait six weeks, they order an MRI. And that MRI comes back and shows a small rotator cuff tear. You don't know that that tear was there you know, long before your MRI was obtained. But now you're in trouble. So mm-hmm. now you may be in a doctor's office who says, oh, you have to have an operation for this. And if you're in a physician's office who says, you know what, you don't need an operation, but you're a tennis player. Every time you go to hit a serve and you have a little twinge in your shoulder, you're going to be afraid you're making that tear worse. So there is the real chance of causing harm by seeing your MRI report. Hmm. 
It's like it puts a label on it and now you're tuned into whatever was maybe there before, but now I feel like that's the answer. Correct. Hmm. Wow. All right. Let's talk arthritis. Is it an overuse injury that requires constant rest? Uh, I'm setting you up on this one. There's a slow pitch. It's been floated into you. (laughs) Definitely not. People were taught to think that osteoarthritis, which is the loss of cartilage or cushioning in your knee, is because of a mechanical issue. So sandpaper rubbing away wood, cheese grater, shrinking down your Parmesan. It's not the case. There's actually thousands of chemicals and proteins and hormones that are involved in the nutrition of our cartilage in our joints. You know, the prevalence of osteoarthritis is increasing. It's not increasing because we're more active. Um, It's not only increasing because we're heavier. It turns out that our metabolism and our overall metabolic health and wellness has a lot to do with the health of our soft tissues and the Mm. cartilage is involved there. So we know that people with metabolic dysregulation, so glucose, metabolic issues, diabetes, prediabetes, et cetera, hypertriglyceridemia, high cholesterol, et cetera, they all have issues with their cartilage health, tendon health, muscle health, et cetera. So we're setting ourselves up for the development of osteoarthritis. Now, when people are told that osteoarthritis is caused by wear and tear, as we discuss the damage incurred by an MRI finding, now these people are going to be less happy about exercising or taking that long walk. Mm. Um, I find that the most important thing that I get to tell people in the office is you can walk or do X, Y, and Z despite the pain without fear of causing harm. Mm. Until you say that, you haven't really done them justice. You might tell them that they don't need an operation, but they're still going to be worried. So the literature, the, the scientific research is really clear. Exercise benefits and certainly doesn't worsen a case of osteoarthritis the vast majority of times. You know, of course, there are instances where it follows trauma or there's uh, an alignment issue where you had a break previously, um, but those are very rare cases. Great, great stuff. All right, orthopedic surgery or a scope as people refer to it. Is that an easy answer to knee issues? <laughs> You're just lobbing. I'm just laying them out there for you, aren't I? <laughs> this is a fun technique. So there have been so many research studies out over the last five years or so on the sham studies and for those who don't know what a sham surgery study means is let's say you have a meniscus tear um we'll take you and 99 of your best friends who have the same tear we'll put 100 of you to sleep Um, 50 of you will have the actual operation where the meniscus tear is treated 50 of you are going to get two incisions in your knee you're going to lay there on the operating room table for 15 minutes, but you're not going to have anything done on the inside. You both have the same chance of getting better. The key is you both get better, which is 
the reason why it triggers the brain of a surgeon, the surgeon says, they're getting better, this has to work. But the placebo effect is enormous. So obviously, this, it's not the surgery that's creating the, this effect. It's the placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're finding out the same is true for cartilage lesions. The same is true for, for tennis elbow surgery. They just came out with a sham study. For, again, bone spurs or impingement syndrome, they've shown that surgery is not beneficial for that over a placebo. The whole question is, okay, so how do we generate this placebo response? And I haven't heard a great answer to that yet. But certainly the key here is, all right, I'm going to back up. So if I have a typical uh, patient, our age, our activity, and their knee hurts, it's swollen, it goes on for five or six weeks, you insist on an MRI, I don't want to argue with you, you get an MRI, you have a meniscus tear, it shows a little swelling, it shows a tear. You're thinking that you need an operation. For some reason, this magical six-week number has emerged in orthopedics. It's like everything's going to get better in six weeks. It's just not true. So most meniscus tears are going to calm down in the three- to four-month range, and that swelling is mm. going to go away, and your meniscus tear is going to stop hurting the majority of the time. Not every time. Don't send me mean messages. <laughs> um, but if you have you know, a frozen shoulder, a sore shoulder, a small rotator cuff tear, same thing. It's not going to get better in four to six weeks. That's not a magical time frame. It might take three, four months. It might take a year. But if you wait long enough and stick with your therapy and rehab and exercise, you'll often do just fine without us having to put anything inside your body. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny. We joke about these being softball pitches, but you and I both know these are the questions that we get every day. People are literally asking these things and, and you and I laugh. And that's that's why I love having you on here because everything you write, I'm like, oh my gosh, we got to get that out here. <laughs> so here's another softball question for you. Speaking of knee pain, running is obviously bad for your knees, right? Yes, it's terrible. No. <laughs> it, so, so the incidence of osteoarthritis is lower in runners uh, than in a similar non-running cohort. There's probably many reasons for that. As I mentioned, your metabolic health has a lot to do with the health of your cartilage. Uh, so one would imagine that a runner usually is taking better care of themselves. Uh, so they're setting themselves up for success. Two, it turns out that articular cartilage, which is the cartilage that we're talking about that coats the end of our bones, tends to like the cyclical loading that running presents. As I mentioned, there's hundreds of chemicals and proteins and compounds inside our knee, and we could take fluid out of your knee, put it into a testing device, and get a list of all the chemicals there. We're going to find some pretty bad ones, one called COMP, which is um, a chemical that shows the degradation level of cartilage. We'll find IL-6, which is a pro-inflammatory mediator. And then we could send you running, um, run around the block for 20 minutes and take more, more fluid out of your knee. That COMP level is now down. Your IL-6 level is now down. Your IL-10 which is your own anti-inflammatory interleukin, um, have now risen up. 
So somehow this stimulates the production of these protective uh, hormones, chemicals, and proteins mm. in our knee. Um, so the vast majority of runners can, can continue to run and should just shut out everything that their friends are telling them about how bad running is for their knee. All right, middle-aged shoulder pain. What is it, and why shouldn't it necessarily involve MRIs and surgery? You touched on this a little bit before, but can you go a little bit deeper into it? Yeah, sure. The vast majority of you who have shoulder pain, 40s and beyond, have a more mild, annoying, occasionally sharp pain. I'm not talking about the severe cases, and I'll get to those in sure. a second. So you wake up, you you know, you're a side sleeper, and you realize your arm aches, and you have to turn, you know, and twist around at night. You try and reach to the top of the cabinet to grab something, or you extend your arm out to get uh, milk, or you reach back for your seatbelt. These are all classic stories that we get. The majority of time, you have a little bit of inflammation inside the shoulder in a structure we we call a bursa. It's usually not severe if your pain is not terrible. Now, as I mentioned, your rotator cuff, which are the four tendons that are deep to, to your deltoid, they really control your shoulder motion. And you need to have a mostly intact rotator cuff for your shoulder to function well. Those rotator cuff tendons change as we age. The process of tendon aging is something we call tendinosis. So the majority of people are going to show evidence of tendinosis from their 40s and beyond. Sometimes that progresses to a little bit of fraying. What do I mean? So imagine your favorite pair of blue jeans. You look down at the knee one day, and the fabric's getting really soft. You look there a few months later, you see some, some fibers are sticking up. And then you look there a few months after that, and all of a sudden you see your knee. You didn't tear your blue jeans. It just wore out. And your rotator cuff is not very different. So the majority of you are going to respond to, to physical therapy, stretching to preserve your range of motion and prevent a frozen shoulder. And you're not going to need to pursue cross-sectional imaging or an MRI. On rare occasion, you do. The people who we tend to MRI are those with weakness on our examination because those people may have a large enough rotator cuff tear that we need to worry about that. However, 90 plus percent of you are not going to fit into the classification and you're going to get, you're going to be fine if you give your therapy a chance, do it on your own. And again, four to six weeks is simply not a realistic number. And the closer number is somewhere in three to six months or more. Hmm. Now, a few of you are going to just wake up one morning and screaming in pain, really uncomfortable, can't sleep, can't sit still, don't know what to do with yourself. Many of you are going to be found to have calcific tendonitis, which is a little bit of calcium with the consistency of toothpaste uh, seems to form within the tendon of the rotator cuff itself. We can get these in the Achilles, we can get them in some of our hip tendons too, but the vast majority of the time it's in the shoulder. Calcific tendonitis seems to hurt like nothing else. These people are just miserable. And unfortunately, many are told that they need surgery to remove the calcium, and they're more than happy to do it because they really are beside themselves uncomfortable. 
But oftentimes you can find a radiologist or someone who's skilled in the use of ultrasound who can wash the calcium out uh, with a needle, and most people are going to do fine. Another group of people are going to have something we call uh, Parsonage-Turner syndrome. It's much more common than we think. It often follows a viral illness or syndrome. It could follow it can follow a vaccine, and it may be due to an immune reaction, but they get this intense, horrible pain around their shoulder. It's followed a few weeks later by weakness, which is the hallmark. They may have some numbness and tingling in various areas too, but they're exceedingly uncomfortable. And unfortunately, there's just no way to treat them um, successfully. We need to let the disease run its course, and it does, and it will go away. Uh, But it can be a number of months. Just before we jumped on today, you tweeted out about the uh, PRP and Achilles study. Can you talk us through the the brief nature of that, both what is PRP for folks that aren't familiar with it, and then your second comment was most people with, you know, Achilles tendon ruptures don't need surgery. Can you just give us the high-level version of that for the people that are thinking that's just an automatic? Yeah, it's really astonishing. So PRP, that study addressed whether infiltrating PRP into a healing Achilles tendon tear assisted the healing, created a stronger repair or a better outcome, and it turned out it didn't. What PRP is is platelet-rich plasma. So the, the platelets are one of the cell types that are in your blood. They assist in uh, clotting. They have a number of chemicals and growth factors deep within them, and those can be released by activating the platelet. So we spin your blood in a centrifuge, it separates out. Um, Those platelets can be then taken off into a syringe, and we can then use that to inject anywhere uh, we want to. We use it in places of tendonitis, Um, or tendinosis, such as tennis elbow. And it's been tried in patella tendon or jumper's knee and Achilles tendons of runners. Uh, As I mentioned in that tweet, PRP and Achilles tendons just don't get along. It doesn't work for cases of tendinitis or tendinosis or what's called AT or Achilles tendinopathy. And it obviously doesn't work in the setting of a rupture. People are going to shoot me messages and say it worked for me. Of course it did. You know, this is, again, versus placebo. So, you know, no one wants to think that they had a placebo response, but you do. People get it all the time. Now, Achilles tendon tears. um, You know, the research is really clear. The majority of Achilles tendons... Uh, ruptures or tears, I don't care if it's a complete or partials, don't need to be repaired. Some do, and it's very hard to determine who that person is. I think people with really large gaps, and I'm not going to give you a number, can be considered uh, for repair. I've seen Achilles tears where the edge flips on its on, on itself so the two torn edges aren't opposed to one another i operate on those because i don't imagine those are going to heal 
But I've seen people get back to competitive martial arts and tennis and running and jogging with tendon, you know, a gap of two centimeters, two and a half centimeters. Hmm. And they do basketball players and they do fine. Hmm. Um, And what I worry about with Achilles tendon ruptures is you have very little skin on the back of your ankle. That's very thin skin. There's no fat under there. There's no cushioning. There's nothing. So if you have any issues with healing or skin compromise, those surgeries go bad really fast. Hmm. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you end up having to have a plastic surgeon do a flap where they're going to move skin from your thigh or your forearm, they may have to move a muscle from your thigh or forearm and bring that down and plug it into an artery behind your ankle um, to get uh, coverage of a soft tissue defect that occurs around the Achilles. And in those situations, you might lose the Achilles tendon if it got infected too. So now, you know, is that common? No, I'm not trying to scare people, but it's reality. You know, the only surgery without risk is a surgery on somebody else. So, <laughs> you know, if, if I tear my Achilles and the two ends are in the same room, you know, with one another, you're not operating on my Achilles. You know, it's been shown that an aggressive accelerated rehabilitation uh, of a non-operatively managed Achilles tendon rupture uh, is equivalent to uh, a successful repair. Very good. All right, let's take a slight side turn here, but it may affect all of these answers. How does what we eat affect our joint pain? Yikes. You know, you're going to light up Twitter with this. <laughs> I, I really hate getting into the diet discussion because of what goes on on Twitter. On this. Yeah, totally. Stuff. It's, it, it's really terrible. Uh, we've lost the ability to talk to one another. Um, Completely agree. So this goes back to what I was talking about with your metabolism, right? Um, your metabolism matters. Your resting blood sugar matters. Your, your fasting insulin level matters. Your LDL level matters. I don't care what they say online. Cholesterol is not good for you, right? Every... I shouldn't say that. High cholesterol has not been been proven to be good for you. Um, And uh, statins aren't killing, you know, tens of millions of people. So (laughs) I don't even know where to go. (laughs) But um, in order to make sure that we are optimized for a long health span, which is a active, healthy lifespan, then paying attention to our metabolism and what we're shoveling into our mouths matters. We, you know, there's no one food group that contributed to the obesity epidemic and to our metabolic dysfunction. Carbs are not the devil. Gluten is not the devil, right? Despite what you might read online. Um, and, you know, nor am I a believer in that moderation is the key. No, you know, you can't smoke moderately. You can't eat, you know, half a cupcake a day. I, I'm not a fan of that approach either. 
Um, but what gets us in trouble is processed foods. Mm. Right? A calorie is not a calorie. Sure. They're not the same. If I give you an isocaloric diet of whole foods, 2,000 calories, processed food, 2,000 calories, you're going to get sicker and fatter on the 2,000 cal calories of processed food as opposed to the whole food despite having the same macros, so the same per per percentage of fat, carbs, and protein. So something is happening inside us with this processing of our foods. You know, fructose is evil. Um, not fruits. I'm a big fan of fruit. Don't don't hate me. Um, but <laughs> high fructose, corn syrup, and again, processed derivatives um, of of fructose are having a profound effect on us. Um, Even at the level of the joint, hundred percent. So mm -hmm. your your uric acid uh, is almost a direct reflection of your fructose in intake, um, mm -hmm. uh, as well as other things. Sure. Um, and uh, you start getting uric acid deposition at a uric acid level of you know, seven to eight. Um, it can be lower in some instances and higher based upon other chemistries in your blood. And you start to deposit that stuff in your joints. You're going to trigger this low-grade in inflammation. That's going to trigger your IL-6, your comp, and all sorts of degradative processes that's going to lead to degeneration. It's all connected. That's the whole gist and point of everything that I'm trying to present to people. Hmm. Hmm. Very good. Very good. All right. Strength training. You are obviously a big believer in strength training, especially as we age. Can you talk us through some of the reasons behind this? Yeah. So your muscle mass uh, the presence of adequate muscle mass correlates with longevity, um, meaning that the bigger, more active, and healthier that your muscles are, the better your metabolic processes are going to be. You have two highly metabolic tissues in your body, uh, aside from the brain. That's your most metabolically active tissue. And one uh, is um, belly fat. Yeah, that's the fat that's in our gut. That's a very dangerous tissue because it creates a lot of inflammatory uh, proteins and compounds that have very deleterious effects on your overall health and well-being. The other group uh, of tissues that we have are very active are muscles. So muscles are our largest sink for glucose, right? So you like carbs, that's fine. You better have some way to store them that doesn't involve fat. Um, and certainly the fat around your organs because that's the dangerous or belly fat. Yep. Yep. Um, so the larger your muscles, the more metabolically active they are, the better you're going to manage your blood glucose levels, your inflammatory levels, and the, the more fit that you're going to be met metabolically. Now, there's other ways to look at this, too. Uh, sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is age-related muscle loss. You uh, can't stop this. We are genetically pre-programmed to develop this, which this is the why, this is the reason why we see, you know, very thin, frail limbs on a lot of our 
grandparents and older folks who are walking around. That's due to age-related muscle loss. I see this, you know, every time I operate and do and do a knee replacement and I get to see the quadriceps. Some of these muscles are nice and robust, and these are people who are healthy and active. And some of these mu muscles, one, are they're either not present or they're just laced with fat. So if it were a steak, you might love it. But if it's your own quadriceps, you don't want it at all. Um, because that weakness uh, comes at a big toll. You know, heart disease, uh, strokes, and dementia might be listed as a cause of death. Um, and heart disease may be the number one cause of death. However, if you think about it, frailty has caused a lot more deaths than any of these. And it's just not listed as the cause of death, not death on a death certificate. And the issue with frailty is this. If you lose muscle mass and you can't get up from a chair without assistance and you're pushing yourself up and you can't get up from a seated position on the floor, let's say you sustain an injury. You'll recover from that injury in two or three weeks, but you're going to not return to baseline. You're going to be a little bit weaker than you were prior to that last fall. And then you're going to fall again at some point in time. And you're going to not respond back uh, to the, the baseline level of fitness that you had before your more, more recent fall. And this just starts to snowball. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're not moving around. You're sitting more. Now you need a walker. Now, because you're not working on your balance, um, you're starting to trip more often. You're starting right. to catch your toes more often. You're going to take a fall, break a hip, and 30 to 50% of people who break a hip are not going to be alive within a year. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, big problem. Um, so when I talk to people about exercise programs, there's four pillars, right? There's aerobic training to get your heart uh, and cardiorespiratory system in shape. So that's zone two heart rate training, right? That's getting on a bike and just spinning the pedals to get your heart rate up 120 to 140, depending on your age. That's resistance training, uh, and preferably legs, uh, if, you, if you're doing this to look good in a mirror, you can do some upper extremity work. But if you're doing this to live longer and live healthier, you're doing legs. Hmm. Um, then balance training. Um, anyone who's over 35 or 40 knows that when they first get up from a chair and they have to step to the left or right to balance themselves or they're catching their toes on a carpet or uh, you know an edge more often, you can see this. Your balance and ability to balance is decreasing. You know, or get up on a stand-up paddleboard, you know, in the middle of the ocean. I bet a lot of you can't do that. Um, but if you train yourself and train your balance, I bet you will be able to do that. Um, I speak from experience in this. Um, and then high-intensity interval training, you know, uh, I think HIT work adds just another level. Right. Um, I don't really push it on people. Yes, I'll do it uh, as part of a sprinting program. Um, one of those, you know, resistance uh, fan bikes, uh, wind bikes, whatever you call them, mm -hmm. based on the name. 
Um, but if I can get people to walk, work on some balance and do some uh, little chair squats, I'm really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. What questions should individuals be asking their surgeon that they're likely not currently asking? Huh. So, you know, the majority of you are not seeing someone because you tripped, fell, and ripped something. Right. You know, this isn't a quadricep tendon of which all of them need surgery. The tendon, all of them need surgery. Uh, if you've torn those, the majority of you are going to wake up one day uh, or you're in the gym and your shoulder hurts or your knee hurts. And after two, three weeks, which you're going to assume is enough time, you're going to go to your doctor. Uh, hopefully, your exam is pretty benign. Um, and hopefully, you get the talk that if, you know, one, you can continue working out or exercising if the pain isn't severe. Two, let's give it a little while. Uh, sometimes, again, six to eight weeks, depending on the circumstances. And if it doesn't, you can revisit the need to get an MRI. I would caution you not to walk in and insist on getting an MRI. Um, those are very awkward situations. And again, your MRI result could, could complicate the decision-making here and not necessarily improve it. Hmm. Um, because there's a good chance they're going to find something. And that's going to impact you and your ability to exercise and desire to exercise. And it might, uh, it might lead to that surgeon suggesting an operation for you. Um, Shannon Brownlee has a great book, right? Overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Um, and we are overdiagnosed and we are, and that leads to overtreatment. And if you're, Overtreated, you're going to run into complications that are associated with those treatments. Um, so you don't want to be a statistic. So you're going to ask, you know, what happens if I don't have this operated on? Um, could this get worse? Um, could it have more of an impact on me in the future? And what are the other options for for treatment, what's a realistic time frame for my recovery? And if you hear four to six weeks, <laughs> you're probably just in the wrong office. Um, <laughs> There's some advice we can take to the bank. I, I just haven't seen anything get better in four to six weeks. But you just have to ask a lot of questions. You know, most doctors want to do the right thing. Um, so they're good people. Uh, they're skilled professionals. I see wonderful surgical skills exhibited, you know, on Twitter with some really complex things presenting. I love the discussion. And I don't necessarily fault the surgeon. I think, I think a lot of it goes back to our training um, and how we train the future generations. Um, I don't think they're spending enough time in the office. I don't think they're spending enough time learning about the nat natural history of these disease processes. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgery resident, you're in an operating room all day, and you're fixing hmm. 10 rotator cuff tears, you know, in a month, you may assume that all rotator cuff tears are fixed. Right. Right? Um, 
So the educational programs are not standardized. Um, you know, you see severe bone-on-bone arthritis, and now you're doing a knee replacement. So somehow in your mind, you're drawing a conclusion that if you see someone with bone-on-bone arthritis in your office, they need a knee replacement. Um, I happen to know, uh, I have a a good friend who has bone-on-bone arthritis, and he just ran a sub-21-minute 5K with me. (laughs) Um, So he's faster than me, which Mm. I really hate. Um, (laughs) So that's you know, don't treat an x-ray, right? You treat the person. So you just have to understand that this is a fee-for-service system, right? Um, And you have to, you know, be your own best advocate. Uh, Be careful what you read online. Uh, there, There is some great stuff online and there's some real junk online. Uh, and oftentimes it's hard to tell what's the truth and what's not. Yeah. Uh, and second and third opinions are always really good ideas. Excellent. Excellent. Two more questions. First one, let's turn the mirror around for a minute. What's something you're currently working on in your own health and wellness that might surprise people who know you? <laughs> Only anyone would be surprised. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've, been uh, mostly Mediterranean diet vegetarian for years and it 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 annoys many friends and family members that I just I could rarely drop that and go for that that cake that donut or that bagel you know I, I have to practice what I preach and obviously those who live in moderation see (laughs) this as being extreme and perhaps a little nuts but it is what it is Um, you know they know me they see me out on the road they see me on the trails they know I'm going running don't mess with my running time it's (laughs) that sounds familiar right I'm just going to go please don't give me an ultimatum um, because I may make the wrong decision that I'll end up paying for later. Uh, I, I really have, uh, come around, you know, I, I came around late to learning the fine points of saving for retirement. So I'm going to work forever. Uh, I'm joking, but sort of, <laughs> uh, and I, I came around late to realizing the fine points of what it's going to take to live longer uh, and not only that to live uh, a more active and healthy life. I'm really en- en- envious of these folks that I see in the office. They're 95. They're in full possession of their mental faculties. They remember the exact date that they came to see me last, what room they were and the socks that I was wearing. Um, <laughs> they're incredibly impressive people and I could see muscle definition. Uh, now, some of them are working at this, and some of them just struck it rich on the genetic clock. Um, and someone who wasn't as genetically predestined uh, to be, you know, a centenarian, they can get awful close to those levels by watching what they eat watching 
their biomarkers, um, exercising, uh, and doing everything that they can so that they age well. So that's your that's that's what you're focused on is being consistent with. Hey, I'm saying these things. I'm tweeting these things. I'm blogging these things, and I'm living these things. That's your biggest emphasis. Yeah. So this is that's not awesome. me. Yes, yeah, this is not me just sitting at a computer and right. spouting things off. There's a reason why you see these tweets come out of my home office at 4:30 in the morning. You know, because I'm up. Uh, I'm having a cup of coffee, and I'm about to throw on a pair of shoes and go running. Um, right. You know, and if it's over 20 degrees, it's shorts and a T-shirt um, <laughs> because it just works. Uh, and my breakfast, whatever, you know, it, it's, 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 yes, um, I don't break the mold. Um, yes, you can cheat, sure, not that crazy. But this is, you know, a, a lifestyle that I've chosen to pursue. It's not painful whatsoever i enjoy it and hopefully i can be a father longer because this is going to be a, uh this is going to be a different world that our, our kids are growing up in yeah. i just want to be there to help them muddle through it yeah beautiful beautiful last one any final words of wisdom for coaches or other folks that are out there trying to help individuals more broadly with their health and wellness that maybe i haven't teed up with the right question yet oh boy so you're getting into an area that's great. Sleep. Sleep is just hypercritical. It's mm. Far too many of us think of sleep as this passive activity that's going to come to us when we're just utterly exhausted enough from doing everything else, you know, which includes binge watching something. Um, you know, we have to actively pursue that magical eight-hour sleep window, which admittedly can be awfully difficult you know in this always on frantically active world um but we can prevent you know whole hosts of there's no known disease whose course is not altered by poor sleep it, it really is astonishing and for the health and wellness coaches you know there's no one answer no, please don't push them into, uh, you know, one specific diet or one specific uh, nutritional regimen you know, or supplement. Um, not, it's not one exercise. It's not just walking. It has to be. There is a whole package. Right. right? And that's sleep and that's eating right and that's exercising, which is aerobic and balance and muscle training and resistance work. And we can get there. Um, we're not going to convince everyone, but I've seen these light bulb moments go off and they're really wonderful moments. Uh, you know, we can change a whole family's medical history. Um, and I'll touch on this. Just give me one second. Um, I had a great case recently where someone came back, they, they're really terrible pain, very overweight, um, severe knee arthritis, wanted to do knee replacement, too heavy, A1C and blood sugar far too high, so infection risk is high, failure mm -hmm. rate's high. Um, we had the talk, we had a few talks, and we set some goals, I helped them through their diet uh, and dietary management. 
wife was not on board and was actually quite angry at me for ignoring her husband. But he bought in um, and he lost the weight. Uh, by the time he came to surgery, um, he was down about 80 pounds. Um, wow. His uh, diabetes was really well controlled. He'll probably be off his diabetes med soon. Um, and when he came in for uh, a post-surgical visit, uh, his wife was there. And she was smiling. Uh, and she looked good. And she shared that she had recently lost weight because she went on the same diet. And this was mm. a, whole, a whole food, plant-based diet. And then they talked about how it's helping their kids and their kids lose weight. Yeah. Uh, and think about that. You're yeah, so cool. a whole family. And what you don't know is the science of this gets even more intriguing. So your diet affects your DNA, right? Yep. You have you know, thousands of genes, but only a few hundred are turned on. Your diet and lifestyle uh, can affect which genes are turned on. That's called your epigenetics. So let's say you go and have children, um, and your epigenetic changes will affect your unborn children. Yeah. So yeah. They can benefit from your active lifestyle or suffer from your uh, ill lifestyle. We had uh, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier on with us in August, and that's his that's his go to. So you're yeah you're you're doing a great callback for us there because it's so fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So you can you know have an effect on downstream generations that you don't even know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Lux, really appreciate it. I, I know you're crazy busy and you, you gave us a lot of time. So thanks for, thanks for diving in and answering a lot of the questions that people just, they're, they're not getting. My pleasure, Brad. It was really fun doing this. Thanks. Now you understand why we worked so hard to have Dr. Lux join us, don't you? What great insights. Important food for thought for us, our family, our friends, and for coaches, our clients. This is probably one of those episodes is going to be shared quite a bit. Thanks again to Dr. Howard Lux. You can follow him on Twitter and you're going to love following him on Twitter at H-J-L-U-K-S or you can follow me at Catalyst, the number two, Thrive, C-A-T-A-L-Y-S-T, number two, Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E. And I actually retweet quite a few of his posts. It's good stuff. Thanks again for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. As always, feel free. Reach out to us anytime. Any questions you've got that are coaching related, results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. We'll set up a time to chat. Or lots of other resources available, both on the website at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or at the coaching channel, which is YouTube.com slash coaching channel. Now it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper, the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your day, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over at youtube.com slash coaching channel.